Welcome to the Payoff Pitch presented by DNL Window Tinting on Fanimal Radio. I'm Paul Valley, and happy to be talking with you again. It's been a little over a month since we last spoke, so I'm really glad to be back in studio with my lovely producer, Morgan. Um, today, I'm going to talk about a few things that are happening. Of course, the Hall of Fame inductions were announced yesterday. Derek Jeter and Larry Walker in. Derek Jeter named on 396 of 397 ballots, so not unanimous like his... Uh, teammate Mariano Rivera, 99.7% of the votes. And a lot of people are up in arms about the fact that Jeter wasn't a unanimous selection. And my question is, why should he be? The Hall of Fame is a Hall of Fame, right? So if you're going to get in, whether you're on 75% or 100% of the ballots, regardless, you're in. You look at Derek Jeter, he was never the best shortstop in the league. He was mainly a singles hitter. Now, look, he had close to 3,500 hits, over a 300 batting average. He had over 200 hits in the season eight times. Only, two, only three players had more 200-hit seasons than Derek Jeter. So, yes, is he deserving of the Hall of Fame? 100%, absolutely. Funny I say 100% because he wasn't on 100% of the ballots. You compare him to a guy that we love here in Baltimore, and that's Cal Rifkin Jr. Cal had played in the most consecutive games in the history of the sport anywhere, 2,632 consecutive games. He set the consecutive innings mark. This is a guy who won two MVPs, had 171 more home runs than Derek Jeter, and his war. We're talking about sabermetrics, and you want to look in the analytics of baseball. Everybody loves wins above replacement. Cal's number was 95.9. Derek Jeter, 72.4. And they played almost the same amount of seasons. Rifkin had 21 seasons if you count his cup of coffee in 81. Jeter had um, 20 seasons if you count his cup of coffee in 95. And Rifkin's war was more than 23 points higher than that of Derek Jeter's. And Rifkin wasn't a unanimous selection. We're talking about a guy who saved the game of baseball in 1995 after the strike. And you're going to tell me that Derek Jeter deserves to be on 100% of the ballots and Cal Ripken doesn't? Uh, for that matter, Willie Mays, Ken Griffey Jr., Mickey Mantle, Lou Gehrig, these guys don't deserve to be on 100% of the ballot. Derek Jeter, Hall of Famer, absolutely no question about it. But I'm not going to get upset that he wasn't on 100% of the ballot because he wouldn't even make, in my opinion, the top 20 or 25 players in the history of the game. And that's just, in my opinion, a fact. It is objective or subjective, of course. Um, that being said, then you move over to Larry Walker. Larry Walker is a guy who only played 150 games in the Major League season one time in 17 seasons, but he did win three batting titles. It was the 1997 National League MVP, a year that he hit 49 home runs, hit 366, finished second in the uh, batting title race behind Hall of Famer Tony Gwynn. He won seven gold gloves and three silver sluggers, and a guy that slashed 313, 400, 565 in his career. Anytime you can have a batting average over 300 and on base percentage over 400 and a slugging percentage over 500, you're one hell of a baseball player. Not to mention the fact that you look at his 1997 to 2002 six-year stretch, he hit 350 or better four times. 350 or better four times in a six-year stretch. Another year, he hit 338, and then one year, really down year, he hit 309. Terrible season for Larry Walker. Look, you want him to play in more games than he played in, sure. But the bottom line is he was 
one of the best players of his generation. He did this in the steroid era. For all intents and purposes, he did it clean, it would seem. Larry Walker, in my opinion, absolutely deserving of a Hall of Famer, especially when you consider that six-year stretch that we just mentioned. Moving on, one of the biggest scandals in the history of baseball. And look, I don't want to talk about this. I just don't. It's been given so much time in the press, in the media, but we have to. We're a baseball podcast, right? The 2017 Astros found guilty in the public court of sign stealing, banging on trash cans once for, for change-ups being thrown. They won the World Series over the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now it's come out that they were stealing signs and basically cheating their way to a world championship. Then you look at the 2018 Red Sox uh, being accused of the same thing. That investigation for Boston is still going on. The manager of that 2018 team, Alex Cora, who was a coach in the Astros system in 2017 and one of the ringleaders for that sign-stealing scandal. Because of this, Alex Cora and the Red Sox mutually agreed to part ways. Let's call a spade a spade. Alex Cora got fired by the Red Sox, but they wanted to paint a pretty picture for the public. You look over in Houston, Jeff Lunau, the, the general manager for the Houston Astros, A.J. Hinch, the manager for the Houston Astros, suspended by Major League Baseball for a full season. So Crane, the uh, owner for the Astros, just went out and he fired both of these guys, which was the right thing to do. He had to fire the guys. They're not going to be part of your team for a full season. They're the face of this steal of the sign-stealing scandal. You had to lay, bring down the ax on them and fire both of those guys, and he did what he had to do. $5 million fine for the franchise. To me, that's not enough, but it's the most allowed by Major League Baseball, so that's why they got that $5 million fine. If the most allowed was $25 million, they probably would have been fined that much. That's just the way it goes. A lot of people want titles to be taken away from the Astros and from the Red Sox. Look, guys, uh, let's just throw a wrench in that right now. That is never going to happen. They are never going to take away those World Series titles because whether or not you like it, the Dodgers didn't win those World Series. They were there, but they didn't win those games. And whether they were stealing signs or not, and clearly they were, you can't just strip a, a World Series title away from them. This isn't college sports. This is professional sports. Now, what I think Major League Baseball should do I don't think they're going to. And this is just a proposal by me. I don't think that necessarily they should do it or would do it. Maybe make Houston ineligible for the postseason like they've done with so many different college basketball teams that were, and football teams who were found guilty of you know, giving money to players and cheating the system. Have it basically be an extended spring training for the Houston Astros where they play all 162 games, they're competitive, but no matter how many games they win, they're just not going to be eligible for the postseason. Again, this isn't something they're going to do. This isn't something that they, that they would do. But if you really want to bring down the hammer and make sure that this never happens again, that would be a route that would make people see, hey, this really isn't worth it. The world titles aren't worth this. Now, for me, the reason I don't want to talk about it, other than the fact that we're beating a dead horse, has been beaten completely into the ground is the fact that these aren't the only teams that were stealing signs. And I don't have numbers or facts to base that on, it's, but this is baseball. There's been cheating in baseball for the entire history of the game. And guess what? 
in the next 10 years, something else is going to come out. We're going to have another scandal on our hands because if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. You know, and it's just one of those things where I know in my heart of hearts that there are so many other teams that, are get, that have gotten away with this, and you're probably going to see it be not as rampant now. But people, players, teams, coaches, general managers, front offices, top to bottom, they're going to try to find new ways to win games, and it's going to come out later that other teams are cheating in other ways. So just get ready for it. You saw it with greenies back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You, see it, you saw it with steroids in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And now you're seeing it with this sign-stealing scandal. You're going to see something else. There's always a step ahead, and once they get caught, they're probably already moved on to the next thing anyway. Now let's talk about some Orioles because, after all, this is an Orioles show, and we want to talk about good news. People were really upset, myself included, when the Orioles did not tender Jonathan VR contract and then traded him to the Marlins for a no-name pitcher. That guy's name is Easton Lucas. He's a left-handed pitcher who got drafted in the 14th round in 2019. Same draft as Adley Rutschman, but several picks later. But they had a nice replacement for VR in Jose Iglesias. They signed him to a one-year, $3 million deal with an option for 2021. When you break down it, when you break it down, it's $2.5 million a year for Iglesias with a $500,000 buyout on that $3.5 million option for 2021. Now, if he goes out and has the same season that he had last year, where he plays solid defense, he hits 288 and hits, you know, 11 home runs, he's probably going to have that option picked up in 2021. This is a guy who plays gold glove caliber defense. He makes contact. He's never struck out more than 70 times in a season. He improves that infield defense. You want to be strong up the middle. And right now, the Orioles would seem to be strong up the middle. You have Austin Hayes playing center field, and he really revamped that Orioles team in September when he came up, making highlight play after highlight play, uh, hit really well. Now you have Iglesias showing up the, the middle of the infield, and you have Pedro Severino and Austin wins behind the plate. Maybe Chan Sisko, but he's not the greatest defensive catcher. So you're pretty solid right now up the middle, and Adley Rutschman coming in the next couple of years. Jose Iglesias is a really nice guy to bridge the gap until some other people uh, make it up to the big league level. And I think he's a really solid signing who's only going to help the Orioles pitching staff that was one of the worst in the history of the game in 2019. And speaking of that, what do we have to look forward to? We have spring training starting in less than three weeks. Opening day is 10 weeks from Thursday. It's coming before you know it, folks. And, you know, this is an Orioles team that has lost 308 games over the last three seasons, really tough to watch. So what are we looking forward to, especially when we're expecting this team to lose 100 games again this year? Um, we just mentioned it with the improved defense with Iglesias at shortstop, Hayes in center field. That also moves Hanser Roberto over to second base, which is one of, he's one of the better defensive second basemen in the league when he plays there. So the defense is going to be improved, which means the pitching staff's going to be improved. We're going to get to see an improved bullpen with Harvey, uh, Hunter Harvey, Dylan Tate, Richard Blyer being finally healthy, looked more like the Richard Blyer that we saw the previous couple of seasons uh, in September down the stretch. He pitched really well. You're going to have Hayes in that lineup all year. You're going to, uh, assuming he stays healthy, that, we have to put the caveat on that because, you know, after that big 2017 minor league season that he had, where the Orioles, he was the Orioles minor league player of the year, and he was a top five finalist for national minor league player of the year. He got hurt in spring training the following season. Uh, didn't have the proper workout resume, balked up instead of leaning out. Um, then he got hurt last year, sliding into a bag in a, in a minor league spring training game, uh, injured his thumb, and he's missed a lot of time. 
the last two years. Now, you're hoping that these are just fluke things and that he's not injury prone. That remains to be seen. But when he's out there, he sure is a spark plug. He hits, he plays defense, he runs, he throws. He seems to be a five-tool player for the Orioles. If you have Austin Hayes in your lineup and then you have a guy like Ryan Mountcastle who should join him before too long on that Major League roster, you have two guys who are going to set the foundation for the, for the future of your franchise that you can get really excited about. Now, look, do they make the Orioles a contender? Not this year. They, they, they would have to go out and spend $100 million in free agency to even come close to being a contender this year, and they're just not going to do that. They saw that albatross of a contract with Chris Davis, but I think you can look forward to possibly seeing the end of the Chris Davis era in Baltimore. Now, the end as far as him being a player on the field, because they're still going to have to pay him all that money this year, next year, and in 2022. And on top of that, they have to pay him all that deferred money until I believe he's 53 years old. So they they got to pay him for about another 17, 18 years. So Chris Davis is going to still be a cloud around this, this franchise for a couple of decades. But you could see him, if he doesn't play well, he could be finally DFA'd, given his outright waivers, so that we can make room for Ryan Mountcastle on the Orioles roster. Ryan Mountcastle, at 22 years old, the youngest player in the International League, won the MVP at AAA for Norfolk. So that's a guy to get really excited about. And look, you're also, you can talk about Dean Kramer, who was hitting 96 in a bullpen session the other day, um, led the minor leagues in strikeouts two years ago, really solid pitch that the Orioles got in that Manny Machado trade. That's a guy who could be a stud for this, for this rotation moving forward. You'll see him at some point this year, I have to imagine. Keegan Aiken's getting a long look in spring training. And, yeah, he had a, above a 4.5 ERA last year. But offense was up all around minor league base, all around AAA minor league baseball last year. And that 4.5-plus ERA was good enough for him to finish sixth in, for the ERA title in the International League. So that just shows you how high up offense was. They also had him working on honing his pitches to change up his curveball a little bit more. But he has a heavy fastball that gets a, a fair amount of sink that gets beaten to the ground a lot. And that's a pitcher you want pitching in Camden Yards that's a band box and really prone to a lot of home runs. So Keegan Aiken's another guy that you can really look forward to. Bruce Zimmerman, Zach Lowther, uh, Alex Wells. These guys are all coming, and they could all make their debuts at some point for the Orioles. Most of these guys are going to be pitching at Norfolk, but they're just a phone call away. No, the Orioles are not going to give you much in the win-loss column unless you're talking about the 100 losses in that loss column. But there's reason to be excited about this team because this is when we're going to start to see that foundation laid for the winning baseball that's coming in the next three to five years here in Baltimore, hopefully closer to the three-year side rather than the five-year side. Uh, and also, another thing you can look forward to, folks, we all love to watch those spring training games because it's our first taste of baseball since the end of September when they start the end of February, beginning of March. And you're going to get to see Adley Rutschman, the number one overall pick and the best catching prospect since Johnny Bench. You're going to get to see him in some of those games because he got an invite to Major League uh, spring training the other day. Now, we all know those fans who they see that Rutschman got the invite to spring training and he's going to get cut from the roster. It's going to happen. He's going to be reassigned to minor league camp because he just got picked last year and hasn't played above Delmarva, which is low A ball. You're going to have those fans who, when he gets cut, if he's hitting well, they're not going to understand why he wasn't given a chance to be on the roster. They're going to talk about the fact that the best 25, or this year the best 26 men should be going north with the team. One, 
it doesn't make sense. Okay, it doesn't make sense to start his clock on a team that's going to lose 100 games. You want to start his clock when the Orioles' clock for winning starts. Two, just because you have a good spring training against minor league pitchers and guys that probably don't make major league rosters doesn't mean that you're going to be successful at the big league level. Again, this guy just got out of college. He just got drafted not even a full year ago. We're talking he got drafted uh, 10 months ago, 9 months ago, something like that, or 8 months ago. This is a guy who is who has barely played professional uh, baseball, barely gotten his feet wet, and he's just not ready. He's just not ready. He's going to start at Frederick, might make his way up to Bowie the second half of the year, and then he'll probably be a prominent name in spring training next year, maybe with a September call-up in 2021. But he's not going to be a mainstay on this roster until 2022, folks, and that's just the way it is. We should be thankful right now that we're going to get to see him play baseball on television this year. What more can you ask for from a guy who's supposed to be the savior of the franchise that just got drafted eight months ago? I'm pretty excited to see him play on Masson at the end of February. You all should be too, and 2022 will get here before you know it, and then we'll be seeing this guy every single day, leading the Orioles hopefully to their first World Series title since 1983. All right, folks. We're going to get a break here and a word from our sponsor, DNL Professional Window Tinting. And then after the break, Dan Connolly from The Athletic, Orioles beat writer, joins the show to give us some great content about his Hall of Fame ballot, uh, about what we can look forward to from the Orioles in spring training. All that and more after this word from DNL Window Tinting. In your home, sunshine can stream in through windows, bringing a cheerful feel and warmness to any room. Sometimes, though, it brings in too much warmth, even harmful ultraviolet light and solar energy that can raise energy bills. Drain the color from your fabrics and furnishings and cast a blinding glare on your television or computer screens. DNL Window Tinting can protect your home from all of this while saving you money on energy bills. Start saving today by calling DNL at 410-941-2942. That's 410-941-2942. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Payoff Pitch. And joining me today from The Athletic is Orioles beat writer Dan Connolly. Dan, how are you doing today? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks again for joining the show. Uh, the Hall of Fame results were released last night. Derek Jeter got in on 99.7% of the ballots, including yours. Uh, you were not the one that left him off the Hall of Fame ballots. Um, so Jeter, five-time world champion, seven times in the World Series, uh, collected over 200 hits eight times, captain of that Yankees franchise. He went in with Larry Walker, who got just over 76% of the vote. He won three batting titles and was a 1997 National League MVP. What are your thoughts on the Hall of Fame, and can you shed a little light on what your ballot was like? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, you know, I know a lot of fans look at it and are thrilled with, I guess, the overall results, and there's, you know, 400 people who vote, and one person left to your off. And honestly, I mean, you're never going to get, or you're rarely, I guess we did with, with Barry Oliver last year, but you're rarely going to get, uh, you know, 400 people in anything to agree on, on anything. So to get to 75%, I think it's difficult, and I think it really is kind of um, the guys that get there are worthy. I thought Larry Walker was worthy since he's been on the ballot, since he was a player. I mean, he's just a, you know, terrific all-around baseball player. You know, seven-time gold glover in right field. I think people really kind of minimize defense. They crunch all the numbers offensively, but they kind of forget about a really important part of the game, which is defense, and you know, Walker was tremendous, and, and Jeter, obviously, he gets a bump because of the Yankees, because, you know, he was always on the biggest stage, but he also performed really, really well on the biggest stage ball. I mean, he was, you know, uh, you know in the postseason, 
he's one of the best players, uh, you know, at that level consistently, um, you know, in recent generations. So those two guys, to me, were, were slam dunks. I've always voted for Bonds and Clemens. Uh, I have a weird thought about the uh, Hall of Fame as far as the steroid era concern is concerned. What I try to do is I try to minimize the power numbers a little bit, take away some of the homers, take away some of the RBIs, take away some of the select percentage, um, you know, strikeouts for pitchers, that kind of stuff. And I try to look at the overall product, the overall player. And for me, even taking away some of those power numbers, Clemens and, and Bonds were signed up first ballot Hall of Famers. Uh, I understand a lot of people disagree because of the steroid situation. I get that. My problem is I don't know who did who didn't. And I, I really can't be judge jury on that because I simply don't know. There are guys in the Hall of Fame, I would guarantee you, that use PEDs. Um, but we just don't know specifically who all they are. They didn't fill tests, things of that nature. So I try to just dumb it down a little bit. And when I do dumb it down, what I do is I end up putting more an emphasis on the defensive player. Um, guys who are, you know, really stand out defensively get a little bit more of a bump for me. So this year I, I voted for both Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones for the first time. Uh, I vote for him more of a scale every year, and I know a lot of the you know, analytic people don't think he was a very good offensive player. I have my thoughts on that. I think he was a very useful offensive player. Uh, but certainly he wasn't a good, I mean, or a great offensive player, but he was a great defensive player, one of the best all time in his position, which is the most important position on the field. Um, so those guys make it in for me. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other, some of the other guys that I play. Kurt Schilling I put in every year. Uh, so that's pretty much I voted for nine guys this year. Um, normally I vote for ten. Uh, but this year I, I did not see ten necessarily. Gary Sheffield was on the bubble for me, as was Jeff Kent. Um, I do, did vote for Billy Wagner as well. Well, and you mentioned... You know, I, I, you have a great article up explaining your Hall of Fame choices. I believe you also had Andrew Jones um, on, your, on your Hall of Fame ballot, uh, and deservedly so. Um, and you mentioned Bonds and Clemens, and the steroid era, it was an era in baseball. And during that era, they were still the best at their positions in that era. So to me, they should have been first ballot Hall of Famers if I had a vote, and I don't. I would vote for Bonds and Clemens. Look, we're going to move on because I know we have limited time. If anybody wants to see uh, Dan's Hall of Fame ballot and his reasoning behind it, go check him out at The Athletic. He wrote a nice article about uh, a couple of days ago on that. Subscribe and give it a read. It's a good read. Um, moving on, the Orioles, they are not going to have anybody represented on the Hall of Fame ballot anytime soon. A lot of people actually will probably think that maybe Adley Rutschman might be the next Orioles Hall of Famer. And with that in mind, we just learned the other day that Adley is going to be receiving an invitation to big league camp. Now, a lot of people may read way too much into this. What can you tell us about Rutschman's invitation to big league camp and what it means for him and his career moving forward? Yeah, first of all, this was not a surprise. I mean, this was, you know, uh, Michael Elias said this was going to happen in December. This was not like, oh, my gosh, it happened. I mean, he told us in December that Adley Rutschman was going to be in minor league camp. Um, and, and there are a couple reasons for that. For one, you want to reward a guy. Obviously, he is you know, considered the future. You do want to reward a guy. But he's a catcher. And that's a big, you, you need at least six or seven of these guys in spring camp because there's so many pitchers there. And you just have, you can't have two or three guys there. So you always have an extended number of catchers anyway, six, eight guys. So I think Rushman, you know, for one, they're going to get him around the big league coaching staff. They have several people who are you know, kind of catcher-centric, catcher-oriented now with Freddie Gonzalez and Tim Cousins and with Brandon Hyde, a former catcher. Mm -hmm. So I think he's going to get some 
really good, you know, instruction there. And, and he'll play in some games. I mean, Mike Elias said that, you know, if you're an Orioles fan and you get there early in spring training, you'll probably see Ellie Russell play in some games. What usually happens with these catchers is they, they get about, six, like I said, six to eight of them usually. And, you know, they, they go through the first, you know, all through the, the preparation part. And then when they get to the games, um, they'll usually you send a couple guys out after a few days a week or two and kind of get down to maybe four or five catchers and then break it down to, you know, to three and then usually two at the very end. Um, so I would imagine the freshman will be with the team, you know, from the beginning until maybe, you know, very early March, something like that, uh, maybe get a week and a half, two weeks of, of game time uh, before he gets sit down to minor league camp. Usually when those guys who are considered, you know, the best players are um, up in camp, they usually go around the time that – well, you definitely just answered my next question. That was going to be when would he be reassigned to minor league camp. As far as his career timeline is concerned, now, yes, he was just drafted this past year, but they, a lot of people say he's the best catching prospect since Johnny Betts, certainly since Buster Posey. Um, we're not expecting him to debut this year, but can we expect him to be competing for a job this time next year? I don't think so. I mean, I think it would have to be a tremendous trajectory for him to be you know, competing for a opening day job next year. I think he may go through, you know, the, the motions of that next spring. But I don't think realistically the Orioles see him, you know, with this team next April. I think that the smart way to go about it, and this is kind of the timeline that I basically put out there when he was drafted and nobody in the world's organization has told me I'm wrong. And when I am wrong, they often let me know. <laughs> um, but, but it, you know, the thought was he was going to start at Aberdeen, play a little bit there, then probably go to Delmarva for the Delmarva's playoffs, like, <clears throat> right before that. That's what happened last year. Right. This year, I would imagine he would start the season at Frederick, play there. If he plays well and plays, you know, strong both sides of the ball, I could see them moving him to Bowie, you know, at some time next year. And then him starting, you know, the following season, him starting either at Bowie for a little bit longer or at AAA Norfolk and being ready maybe the following September as a potential call-up and then the final, you know, the next year him being you know, competing for a spot. So my belief is we will not see him in 2020. We will not see him mostly in 2021. And then in 2022, your scenario comes together where he might be able to compete for a job in spring training of 2022. Well, and certainly that's the timeline that makes the most sense. And it also is probably the timeline that realistically gets him here around the same time as your top pitching prospects like D.L. Hall and right. Grayson Rodriguez. And so that would make the most sense. Now, speaking of your pitching and the rotation, there's really only three guys locked into that starting rotation right now with Alex Cobb, John Means, and Asher Wojciechowski. Um, there's also a number of other, other guys vying for spots. Uh, you have the guy that the Orioles recently uh, traded for in Cole Stewart. Uh, you have Rule 5 picks Brandon Bailey and Michael Tucker. And then Michael Elias said that Keegan Aiken's going to get a nice long look in spring training. If you had, and look, you, you don't have to decide right now because it's still late January, but if you had to, had to pick right now, who do you think, rounds out that rotation for the Orioles, and are they going to be signing a veteran pitcher here before or during spring training? 
Yes and yes. <laughs> I I think that they will sign another veteran pitcher, at least one more veteran pitcher. I wouldn't be surprised if they bring in a second one, um, you know, either on minor league deals or, or, you know, maybe one on a major league deal. I would imagine they'll be both on minor league deals. But, you know, there are still starting pitchers out there, veteran kind of guys that do not have jobs, have not signed out elsewhere. Um, and so I think that the Orioles will still be, you know, paying attention to that. I mean, if I had to put money on it right now, I would put Stuart Bailey in that uh, – the, end of the back end of the rotation. Um, I think Aiken does have a shot. You know, what he did in AAA last year wasn't, you know, blow your doors off. I would imagine, unless he has a really good spring, that he goes back to AAA. One of the things that we've noticed now with Mike Elias, and it's kind of interesting, you know, it's only been one year, so you really got to kind of try to really look at the tea leaves and kind of figure out what, where his strengths are, what he's looking at, you know, what his philosophies are. But it does strike me that he is a guy like Dan Duquette, likes to see a player, a minor leaguer, complete a level or at least excel at a level before he gets moved up. And I think that that's the case. You know, you want to see some success at each level. And I think that's, that's something that Elias wants. And he wants to see guys really do well at AA and then move up to AAA. Maybe get a full season at AA if possible. Also, you have to look at the financial part of it, too. I mean, you, you, know, you start a clock on these guys, um, you know, both as far as my league options are concerned, if you're on a 40-man roster, but also service time situation. You know, does that really help you out if you don't expect to win a lot of games in 2020? So I think that he'll be conservative with Aiken, and I think Bailey kind of has to make the team as a Rule 5 draft pick, So I think, and I think they do like him. So I think he's a guy that will get a look. They signed Stewart to a major league deal, so I would imagine that he, you know, he has an upper hand here. Um, it's amazing that Asher is now being penciled as it's kind of a lock in the rotation um, and something he's never experienced before. But I think that's the five right now. But I do believe, you know, before March 26th, there will be a guy that we have not talked about that's going to be in this rotation. Well, and a guy that we have ta- talked about a lot in the past and only briefly recently, Chris Tillman, former Orioles, former ace of the staff. He's going to be holding a workout in spring training for teams that want to come see him pitch. He had labrum surgery on his right shoulder uh, this past June. He didn't pitch at all in 2019. Will the Orioles be represented at that, at that workout? Um, and if he pitches well, is there a chance that they might bring him back into the organization? Well, you know, I would think so because he fits that list. He fits that, you know, that group of guys who have had success before, veterans who you know, would be on a minor league deal. Um, the one thing, and, and so I do think he would, he would certainly be of interest, the one thing, however, is Michael Ives has not shown a, a lot of attention for recycling at this point. Um, has not really jumped on former Orioles to bring them back into the fold. And I don't know if that's really a philosophy or that's just coincidence at this point, but I, I do think that, you know, we have noticed that, that, that you know, he's not jumping on guys and bringing them back, you know, if they want to come back. He's kind of trying to fit guys that fit his system. So that's going to be up to them if they think Chris is healthy. Obviously, Chris is one of the best guys I've ever covered. Um, you know, real hard worker, real good guy, real, you know, a, a leader for the, to the younger guys. Um, so I think that he certainly is in the conversation, whether they decide to go with that and whether they see, you know, what he has left. I'm not 100% sure yet. Absolutely. And, you know, you look at a, you look at a pitching staff that gave up over, well over 300 home runs last year, had the second-worst bullpen ERA in the league behind the World Series champion Nationals. 
Um, you, you need good defense behind him. And with that in mind, the Orioles went out and signed Jose Iglesias, which makes him the everyday shortstop, probably pushes Hanser Alberto over to second base, which is arguably his best defensive position as it is. What does the signing for Jose Iglesias do for the team? I know it probably doesn't move the needle too much. And does that make Rio Ruiz now the favorite for, uh, third base heading into camp? Well, I think Ruiz was the favorite for third base heading into camp regardless. Honestly, I think they wanted to make Alberto, you know, more of a full-time second baseman. <laughs> Ruiz has to prove it. I mean, he's got, you know, he does not have a spot necessarily. He's got to do it and, you know, and keep playing well and, and keep proving that he has the ability to play third base every day. But I think he kind of had the, uh, at least was the favorite for that position going in. I think what the Iglesias signing does is it changes the entire complexity of what happens with Richie Martin. I think Richie Martin was, you know, A, at least fighting for a starting spot before the Iglesias signing. Now, and you you couple with a couple more signings, I I believe, you know, they they got Arena from uh, Toronto, took him off of the uh, uh, waiver wire. And I believe that, that he is going to be your utility guy. So this allows Martin to go down to AAA. And that kind of speaks to what I was saying before about Elias and liking guys at certain levels. I think he really wanted Richie Martin to be at AAA to start this, this season because he wants him to get that seasoning. He wants him to work on certain things that you cannot work on in the majors. I think fans lose that. You know, I know they're working with major league coaching staff, and that's important. But these guys are the best in the world. And if you're trying to craft your your you know, game, it's hard to do it against the best in the world, and especially hard to do it if you're not playing every day, which Richie Martin wouldn't be. So I think that that, that was kind of a design thing, you know, you get enough middle infielders that Martin can go down to the minors, he can begin to, to play down there, and really work on his game a little bit. We saw some glimpses, we obviously didn't see it consistently from him, but he is only 25 years old, so and had never played before in AAA, so I think the Iglesias signing, more than anything else, buys time for Richie Martin. I would tend to agree with you, and I think that that seemed to be the plan all along. Even after taking Martin with the first pick in the Rule 5 draft last year, it would seem stash him away on the Major League roster for the full season and then send him down to AAA so he can definitely get that more seasoning, like you said. Now, another former middle infield prospect who's now one of the Orioles' top prospects but doesn't have a position is Ryan Mountcastle. And he went out and won the MVP League at the age of 20, won the MVP in the International League at the age of 22 last year. Probably not going to see him to start the year, and I think that even though the Orioles can't come out and say it, I think that's a service time issue. They're going to be playing him at first, second, third, left field in spring training. Where do you expect him to, to stick, and when do you think is the earliest that we could see Ryan Mountcastle this season? Well, I think the earliest is probably going to be late May or so, when you jumped over all of those hurdles as far as not only uh, you know, the six-year part of it, but also um, the Super 2 arbitration status. I would imagine that's probably, assuming he's hitting and fielding well, you see him at some point in that time. And also, and I'm not saying this is directly related, none of the people should necessarily put anything on this, but let's assume that, that Chris Davis does not have a particularly good start to the season as well. If Mount Castle's ready, maybe that's a time where you kind of move it, you make a decision on that. I'm not saying you're going to make a decision on that. I'm just saying that it does seem logical if Mount Castle is really playing well and Davis isn't again. Maybe that's your opening there to, to bring him in. I think that if you bring Ryan Mountcastle up, you're going to want him to, to play pretty much every day. And honestly, you know, right now they don't have a position for him. They don't know what it is. It would have to be crystal ball to figure it out. Um, I've been told the third base really probably is not the place for him, although that would be the, the, the spot 
spot that has maybe the most opening or the, the most chance for him to play every day at this moment. Um, first base obviously could be Davis, it could be Mancini, um, you know, even, even Nunez could play some there. Um, obviously, they would like to get Mancini out of left field, um, not a very good range there. But I'm not sure that's going to happen because of, of the way the, you know, the overall roster looks right now. So I don't know where he'll play. I know they want him to play all the time once he gets up or as much time as possible. Um, he does have an impact bat. So I think that you know, they're going to find a spot for him. And that's kind of been the old adage, you know, if you can hit, you find a spot. And I think they will find a spot for him. I'm not quite sure what it is. I know they want to, don't want him to be a, the everyday DH at the age of 23 or 24, uh, but I also think he'll get a lot of time there because they do want to get his bat in the lineup once he gets up. Well, certainly you, you mentioned the impact bat, and it would seem that his bat's just about Major League ready. It's all about finding him a position at this point. Bottom line is Ryan Mountcastle is coming, and fans can look forward to that at some point. It's just a matter of when and where. Dan. Thank you so much for joining the show. I know you're a busy guy, so we're going to get you out of here, but I really appreciate you taking the time today to come on and, and talk with us on the payoff pitch. No problem. I enjoyed it. Take care. You have a great day. That's going to do it for us here on the payoff pitch presented by DNL Window Tinting on Phantom on Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Valley. Thanks for tuning in. And, guys, spring training is right around the corner, so we're going to have a lot more content and a lot more shows, probably going to be starting weekly shows here at the beginning of March. Until then, as always, go O's. Thanks for tuning in.